The Guardian. As SARS-CoV-2 spread around the world, we began to learn what factors put people more at risk of having a serious case of the disease, such as being of older age, carrying extra weight, and having certain health problems. But not all of those who develop severe COVID have these risk factors. What's more, it's emerged that people can experience COVID very differently, with many showing symptoms outside of the big three of fever, persistent cough, and a loss of sense of smell and taste. As the months have passed, researchers have been digging into whether the symptoms people experience, as well as their physical characteristics, could lead to better ways of predicting who is at higher risk of developing serious disease or even dying from COVID-19. The last group, which was in a sense the one that was most likely to be going to hospital and needing support, were people who had multiple different symptoms like early shortness of breath, even symptoms like abdominal pain and particularly confusion and chest pain. We developed a score with 21 points and we found that patients who had a score of 15 or over had a 62% chance of dying in hospital compared with only 1% for those who had a score of less than 3 or equal to 3. I'm Nicola Davis and this is Science Weekly. I began by talking to Dr Claire Steves, Clinical Senior Lecturer at King's College London, Consultant Geriatrician at Guy's and St Thomas's NHS Foundation Trust, and a researcher on the COVID Symptom Tracker app. Claire, research you recently did into patient symptoms and outcomes revealed six different clusters or experiences of COVID-19. Can you tell us a bit about the study and how you did it? The findings are all thanks to the 4.1 million or so people in the UK that have logged in to the COVID symptom study app. And what they've done is they've put in some characteristics about themselves. So, for example, their age and where they are and what conditions they already have. So whether they have heart disease, etc. And then we've asked them to report to us what their symptoms are on a daily basis all the way through the first wave of coronavirus. And we're really keen to get everybody to come back now, especially as we face potentially the second wave. And whether you have symptoms or not, you can really help us in terms of understanding where COVID is in our communities, um, how the symptoms are moving, even if we don't have access to testing. And of course, as we've seen over the last couple of weeks, we may not have that great access to testing at all times, especially when there's high demand and high amounts of colds and things like that going around. And so by people logging on the app and telling us what their symptoms are, and also crucially telling us what their test results are, then we can investigate what the symptoms are right from the start of their journey with COVID-19, right from the onset of symptoms through to when they get better or to when they're admitted to hospital and then when they report back to us when they're back from hospital. So let's talk about these six clusters of symptoms. To start with, just give us an overview. What what clusters go together here? How do these symptoms group together? The first thing to say is that we're not saying that they're different viruses at all. We're saying that the same virus can affect people in different ways. And the way that they 
um, are affected. And the symptoms that they get really early in the disease actually tell us something about how their disease is going to play out. And so when we've looked at the time series of all the loggings of symptoms that people have had and we've put them into a machine learning model so it's it's using artificial intelligence to say okay how do these different symptom evolutions in people how do they break down can we see that there are differences and and what the computer algorithm was able to do is to separate into six distinct groups what we were very interested to see is that the distinct groups had different relationships to whether or not they then needed to be hospitalized or needed respiratory support. So that means oxygen or non-invasive ventilation or even ventilation. So you were asking about what the symptoms are. The first one was symptoms of a flu-like illness, but without fever. And that group um, that had flu-like symptoms without fever tended to be very unlikely to go on to need hospital. So we can identify this as a, as a not very at-risk group. The last group, um, which was in a sense the one that was most likely to be going to hospital and needing support, were people who had multiple different symptoms and continue to have those symptoms over the first five days and and through. And they were including symptoms like early shortness of breath, even symptoms like abdominal pain, and particularly confusion and chest pain. So once you're getting lots of different symptoms, and you're still having them post five days, that's when we really should be thinking, hold on a minute, this person is likely to have a severe covid what help can we get to them at home and what monitoring can we put in place so that we can get them the help they need in a timely manner? Then you also had, I mean, I, I seem to remember there was a cluster which was mainly gastrointestinal symptoms. And that that perhaps is surprising for some people because we've heard a lot about how it's, you know, the classic symptoms for COVID are fever, um, loss of sense and sense of taste and smell and persistent cough. But this cluster mainly had symptoms like diarrhea. Is that right? Yeah, that's right. There was a third cluster which sort of had intermediate risk, which was predominantly a sort of gastrointestinal cluster. And we do see this with other viruses as well. I mean, anybody who's had the flu um, may know that sometimes you have a gastric upset in that too. And we know in other respiratory viruses that actually having um, diarrhea and abdominal symptoms could be a sort of slightly higher risk finding. And interestingly, in this group, we saw there were quite a large number of increased proportion of people who had diabetes. But I I think I would say that what we're talking about here is people who have had a COVID diagnosis. So I mean, diarrhea on its own isn't isn't really a very common symptom on its own of coronavirus. So we don't really need to be going and getting tests if we have diarrhea. But if we have a COVID test that's positive, and yet we have abdominal pain and tummy ache and diarrhea after the first few days, then that could be that you're slightly more at risk. How well do people fit into the clusters? I mean, what if someone has symptoms that fit into sort of more than one category and they're thinking, oh, you know, which one do I fall into? 
people shouldn't get too anxious if they say, oh, well, you know, I don't really quite fit into these clusters because I'm not exactly like this or exactly like that. Don't worry about that. It's the overall burden, really, of symptoms and the set of symptoms that someone has. So if it feels like you're more cluster one, i.e. you've got a bit of sore throat, uh, sort of flu-like symptoms, but um, not a fever, you, you know, that, that you're probably in cluster one. And especially if your symptoms don't keep going, you're probably fairly likely to, to get better really quickly. But if you've got lots of, lots of symptoms coming, chest pain, really strong fatigue, muscle aches, a bit of confusion, disorientation, and shortness of breath, that, and you've still got them at five days, that's when you need to be thinking, hold on a minute, do I need to be being a bit proactive here, making sure that I get the right healthcare for me? So we have three other clusters, and I wrote a Guardian article about this, so people who want to know more about the specifics of those clusters, perhaps it's good to check that out. But they have sort of mixture of, of different uh, symptoms, including you know fatigue or chest pain or coughs or confusion and so on. What I wanted to ask, Claire, was about... How accurately this predicts what the outcomes might be for these patients? How, how well does it actually tell us what might happen to them and whether they're going to need to go to hospital? We created a machine learning model, which was taking the symptoms that people had just in the first five days from onset of symptoms in the context of a positive test. And we found that just from their age, and their comorbidities and their body mass index, which is a measure of the overall body fat, we could be fairly accurate, sort of 60-odd percent um, uh, good at predicting whether they needed respiratory support in the following few weeks. But if we added in the first five days of symptoms to that, we could get much better predictions in the high 70s of predictions of whether or not someone was going to then need respiratory support. So that's a significant improvement in the model, you know, potentially if if we could use this to then put them into a risk category and say, actually, maybe we need to go in to see those people, give them a pulse oximeter, which is one of the very easy methods of working out whether someone is um, having breathing difficulties. And in COVID could be really important because sometimes people don't feel as breathless as their oxygen levels should be making them. And also monitoring other things like their blood sugars, whether they're drinking enough, whether they're getting confused and whether they have enough support around them. While Claire and the team hope their work might help to boost support for those with COVID-19 and reduce the number of people having to go to hospital, researchers have also been looking at ways to predict just how sick those who are admitted will become. So this is a score looking at your risk of dying in hospital, saying that the low risk group was one in 100 patients were at risk of dying. In the high risk group, that's 31. And in the very high risk group, uh, that's 62 in 100. Uh, So my name is Anne-Marie Doherty, and I am an academic critical care consultant uh, in Edinburgh. Anne-Marie, we've been looking at predicting how likely it is that someone will end up in hospital if they get COVID, which takes us on to what happens if you end up there. And the study you and your colleagues have done is about developing a COVID-19 risk identification tool or, or score. Just tell us a bit about this. So this is um, already been admitted to hospital. So it's for patients from the front door in the emergency department 
when the decision has been made to admit them. So we can't comment on patients who are in the community. But we wanted to develop and validate a pragmatic risk score in order to predict the likelihood of patients dying in hospital if they'd been admitted with COVID-19. So Amory, we know from data that's been coming out over the past few months that there are certain things that can increase your risk of having a severe uh, case of COVID, you know, things like age, other underlying health problems. What is it exactly that your tool is looking at? We wanted to build a risk model that uh, used variables that are usually available at the initial hospital assessment. So I think there are some variables which you can use, which are very rare and we don't measure very often. And so they aren't very helpful for the clinician at the front door. So we wanted to use the pragmatic score. So variables such as patient's age, their sex, as you say, their underlying comorbidities and health conditions and then a marker of how unwell they were when they came in, so how fast they were breathing, uh, what the oxygen levels were in their blood, whether they were sleepy, and then a couple of blood tests representing inflammation and kidney function. We looked at these points in about half the population that we had, so in the first, I think, 35,000 patients, and then used those findings and the score that we developed We validated it in the second half of our patients, so another 22,000 patients. We developed a score with 21 points, and we found that patients who had a score of 15 or over had a 62% chance of dying in hospital, compared with only 1% for those who had a score of less than 3 or equal to 3. So is this just additive? Do you look at all those measures that you mentioned and you get, you know, one point for each, or is it more complicated than that? We've tried to develop it so that it's uh, easily used by clinicians at the front door. And so by the time that they see it, um, then in actual fact, the the score looks like you have a certain number of points for age, a point for being male, a certain number of points for comorbidity. But it's been developed much more on a a science level and getting the right number of points in order to maximise the the predictiveness of of the model. You split these the scores that you get sort of into four brackets, which is low, intermediate, high and very high risk. Can you just talk me through what this score tells us? Yeah, so this is a score looking at your risk of dying in hospital. And it's, it's a more continuous score. So it's a, it's a score out of 21. But actually, we divided it into these arbitrary groups, saying that the low risk group was one in 100 patients were at risk of dying. In the intermediate, that's 10. In the high-risk group, that's 31. And in the very high-risk group, that's 62 and 100. To help give, I think, clinicians an idea of, of how at risk these different groups are. But you, know, you could have a score of, of 17 or 18 uh, rather than just being in the high, very high-risk group. So this is just for patients dying in hospital. Uh, we also looked at critical care admission. But it's difficult to use a score to predict critical care admission because there's so much clinician and uh, patient discussion that goes into whether being admitted to critical care is appropriate and whether it's something that will benefit these patients. Can I ask, why is it useful to have this tool? I mean, knowing that someone's at high risk of death from COVID, does that mean that you're more likely to whisk them in into uh, intensive care sooner or you're more likely to start them on treatments like dexamethasone or, or something like that? I mean, it, presumably this, this tool is only really useful if it changes the potential outcome for those patients. 
I think you're right. So you need an accurate risk tool. And the ones that exist for pneumonia or sepsis don't translate well into COVID-19. But as you say, identifying patients in the high or very high risk groups could mean that you start aggressive treatment earlier. I think it helps to empower the staff uh, in the emergency department uh, to make that referral to critical care and to start the the thought processes um, about where the patient should go much earlier. It also possibly works the, the other way. So if you fall into a very low risk group, then you can be assured that sending the patient to the ward is likely to be the right decision. So Anne-Marie, we've talked a bit about what this tool might uh, enable clinicians to do and how it might potentially be used to make decisions about patients. Is the hope then that this will potentially reduce the numbers that end up in ICU? I think what it does is it identifies a group of patients who are at very high risk of dying whilst they're in hospital. As clinicians in discussion with patients, you know, we need to think about where the best place to look after those people are. A number of these people are very elderly and frail, and in fact, intensive care may not be the best place to look after these people. You need a significant amount of physiological reserve in order to be able to survive an intensive care unit. And for some patients, the burden of intensive care may outweigh any benefits. And it may be that in discussion with patients and their relatives, they decide that intensive care is not the right place for them to be looked after. And this means if we are able to make this decision earlier in combination with the patients, um, then they have more time to, to spend with their families at the end of their life. In terms of going forwards now, what do we need to understand better? What are the gaps in our knowledge now? Yes, that's a very interesting question, isn't it? There's a lot of work going on in a subgroup of patients looking at more of the the genetics and the virology and the immunology response. And I think that's sort of that will come to the fore soon so that we can really understand why the steroids are working in some patients and not in others and other targets for treatment and using the, the trials that are out, such as recovery and remap cap to really inform what treatments we should be using for these patients and how they respond to it. Thank you so much for joining us on the podcast. It's been great to have you on. Awesome. Thank you. Thanks again to Dr. Claire Steves and Dr. Anne-Marie Doherty. Visit the podcast webpage at theguardian.com for links to my story on symptom clusters and the Isaric 4C Coronavirus Clinical Characterization Consortium's website, where you can find Anne-Marie's risk identification tool alongside other COVID-19 research. You can also ask us here at Science Weekly a question about the science behind the pandemic by filling in the form found at theguardian.com forward slash COVID-19 questions. And that's all one word. That's it for today. We'll be back next week. Until then, take care. For more great podcasts from The Guardian, just go to theguardian.com slash podcasts.